From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, Doug Ree on palliative to pathophysiologic treatment, and Bonnie Henderson on toric IOL planning. Aqueous hypersecretion in 20 years or more of looking and examining, that's never been the case. First this. If you're planning to attend this year's ASCRS ASOA Symposium in Congress in San Diego, California, why not come in a day early for the 2015 ASCRS Glaucoma Day on Friday, April 17th? This full-day program features critical updates, robust debates, and interactive case studies on what comprehensive ophthalmologists and anterior segment surgeons need to know about glaucoma management. Speakers include leaders in the field like ASCRS President Richard Lewis, Stephen Sarkissian, Thomas Samuelson, and Edward Holland. Plus, this educational activity has been approved for AMA PRA Category 1 credit. You'll save more than 10% on on-site rates if you register by Friday, April 3rd. Go to ASCRSGlaucomaDay.org for more information. I had the opportunity to interview a number of people advancing the forefront of ophthalmology during the ASCRS side-by-side meeting in Aventura, Florida. Edited versions of these interviews are presented on the iWorld Replay website as brief videos. I'm going to present these interviews in their entirety over a number of podcasts. Today, we'll hear from Doug Ree on moving glaucoma therapy from palliative to treatments that address the underlying pathophysiology, and Bonnie Henderson on toric IOL decision-making. I'm here with Doug Ree. Doug, you gave a, a, a really, really wonderful talk on glaucoma therapy, not where we are now, but where where we're heading. And and one of the really interesting points you make that I'd like you to sort of flesh out more is is that current therapy really doesn't address the underlying pathophysiology. Now, what do you mean by that? I mean, I'm I'm, I'm giving drops to the patients. The pressures are going down. Yeah. So uh, the underlying practical aspect of that is that... um, let, let me start with some statistics. We know for the last couple of decades that the number of people that go blind from glaucoma is anywhere between 7 to 14 percent. That's people who progress to blind, legal blindness over a, over a 20-year period. And then if you look at other studies um, or from the same group, the number of people that progress on to needing glaucoma surgery, where medications and even in some cases where laser is included in that fail, is around 50%. It's 35 to 50% will need incisional surgery because the medications, even if you give all of them, will fail. We don't even have a good estimate of how many patients will continue to progress. Even if they don't lose vision, their disease progresses so that they need additional therapy. So one way to think about this in your practice is that to ask yourself, do you, how many patients in your practice do you have that have glaucoma for a long time, not just a year or two, that you started on one or two medications and they've been on that for their entire, you know, entire life? That is a very, very small number. Yeah. We don't even have a good estimate on that. Um, and even just to, let me go back to one other statistic, because our medications don't actually interrupt the disease pathophysiology, the OATS study, the Ocular Hypertension Treatment Study, showed that even just to attain a modest benefit, so people just getting started with their disease, um, to get a modest benefit of 
20% reduction of intraocular pressure, 50% were on two or more, 10% required three of that. So it's really, um, the palliative care is not necessarily, it's where we are now, and thank goodness we have much safer medications than we did 20 years ago, um, but it's what we call palliative care. So palliative meaning that it doesn't interrupt the pathophysiology of glaucoma. We have some very good ideas um, through the last several decades of trabecular meshwork research about what is the underlying or what are the underlying pathophysiologies that cause an elevated pressure that are the that cause that eventually causes glaucoma um, aqueous hypersecretion relative to people who don't have glaucoma aqueous hypersecretion in 20 years or more of looking of, of, and examining that's never been the case so that means anything that's an aqueous suppressant so beta blockers, topical carbonic anhydrase inhibitors, uh, selective alpha-2 agonists, they're lowering intraocular pressure palliatively. They're, they're actually doing something um, that the eye normally does or, and, and inhibits it, or it affects something the eye normally does and inhibits it. Um, even uveoscleral outflow, so prostaglandin analogs. Now, in glaucoma patients compared to age-matched controls, there is no difference between uh, the uveoscleral outflow between those two groups. Interestingly, there is a difference between old and young. So in, in folks like you who are very young, uh, <laughs> who are very young, a lot of the outflow is actually through the uveal scleral tract. And someone who's older, maybe on this side of the, of the camera, right? Um, it's more trabecular. And so when you give a prostaglandin analog, although it's not directly impacting the uveal scleral, uh, sorry, the, the pathophysiology of glaucoma, you are actually in some ways almost reversing that the senescence or the effect of aging um, so it and maybe that's why prostaglandins work so so darn well because it's more reestablishing a, a more youthful physiology possibly um, but now I, I think in the in the upcoming decade we may see uh, medications or treatment strategies they, they might not be small molecules i.e. drugs but they might be you know antibodies or like a like the anti-VEGF analogous to that that might actually interrupt the disease process and therefore patients are less likely to progress along a treatment pathway I don't necessarily mean visual field loss we're pretty good at, at stop we're actually very good better than we ever have been at uh, slowing down uh, the path to blindness but we need to to get better at making those treatments you know less cumbersome to the patient less costly to the patient and to society uh, and the next phase of evolution for that to occur is going to be disease modifying therapy now uh, to, 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 to shift gears Slightly, you, you, uh -huh. uh, as you, as you mentioned, that many of your patients, of my patients, are on two drug therapy or on three drug therapy. Mm -hmm. um, I, 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 I have the, the the number of patients I have on three medications, of whom I am positive that they're compliant. Right. is is small and gets smaller every year. Now there right. are some some new. Um, not drugs, but new vehicles yes. that, that address this. Can I get you to talk about this a little Absolutely. bit? Absolutely. So uh, it's a great question. And even though our drugs are better than they ever have been, safer than they ever have been, there's still issues with side effects, uh, with compliance. And we have decades of research, not just in ophthalmology, but in medicine in general, that the more medication somebody's on, the less likely they are to be compliant on all of them. Um, so our com estimated compliance rates, estimated with just one eye drop is around 75% uh, or 75 to 80%. The compliance rates, if you add two or three 
you know, glaucoma drops, it's around 50%. Those are our best estimates. But right around the corner, so where we talked about disease-modifying therapy, that may be a decade away. There's, you know, research in the pipeline to help us achieve that. Um, but right around the corner, in phase three testing, are a lot of sustained release um, mechanisms. So they could range from drug-eluting contact lenses, drug-eluting punctal plugs, um, each, uh, and actually... Uh, um, pellets or devices that mm -hmm. go inside the eye to, to be released or even uh, surgically implanting a device that will slowly deliver drug inside the eye. Multiple different strategies are being employed right now and the good news is we're, we're starting to get to a phase where they're starting to figure out which ones work better, which ones have less issues with retention or zero order pharmacokinetics that will be good. And these are, I think, right around the horizon. These we're talking about maybe instead of 10 years, maybe two to three. And these would be game changers. Because of, of what's happening with uh, wet macular degeneration, the concept of going inside the eye to treat is not something so foreign for us. Um, so you know, periodic injections or maybe implanting a surgical drug-eluting device. Um, these are not such foreign concepts or, or difficult to, to accept as they would have been, say, maybe 15 years ago. For, for, the, for the patients, too, because they've got Absolutely. friends getting uh, uh, shots for... For macular for, degeneration. Yeah. Absolutely. Or they them, themselves might be getting uh, shots for macular degeneration. I think the sustained release platforms will be a game-changer. Course, and will really help um, the practice of medicine as well as um, the patients. Um, so I, I think this is it could be a good, really good thing. This is great, great stuff. I mean, it, it's a it's a it's a wonderful field, mm -hmm. uh, and it's an interesting field because there's there's a there's a lot going on, and uh, I, I I always know you're you're the you're the person to ask. Oh, uh, Doug, thank you very much for uh, bring you. bring this to us and for being so generous with your time with us today. Thank you. I'm here with Bonnie Henderson. Bonnie, you know, I, I, first of all, I'm so happy to be talking to you, seeing you in this beautiful setting. Um, I, you know, I, 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 I love torque lenses. I think that, that, they're, that they're great. I like um, uh, the astigmatism planning and limbal wounds and all, all, all of this sort of stuff. My issue is with preoperative planning for some of these patients. I do topography, I do keratometry, obviously I manifest them, and everything's groovy when the axes all line up, but sometimes they don't, and then what do I trust? And I sort of two questions. What do I trust in terms of what should I use to bias my treatment axis, and what do I trust in terms of determining the appropriate magnitude? Actually, that's you've hit the, the nail on the head. I think the, the million-dollar question when you use toric lenses is which measurement do you rely on? And unfortunately, I wish all the measurements always were, were very correlated with each other. And the majority of surgeons use multiple different instruments to actually measure their corneal case. So the, the question that you ask is, is something that is something that we always struggle with. So I don't think there's a right answer. I don't think there's a perfect yes and no. But for me, I've, I've devised a way where I can use different instruments, where I can rely on certain instruments for certain variables. Tell so me about for, it. So for example, exactly like you said, I split into two variables. So I split into the axis of steepness and the power, the magnitude of the astigmatism. And for the axis, I tend to rely on machines that 
give objective data. So if you compare machines like the manual keratometer where you're really relying on the operator to, mm -hmm. to run it properly, to determine the axis properly, I tend to find that there's a lot of variability. So I don't rely on those instruments as much. So I tend to rely on things like the auto keratometer or non-contact biometry that really helps me determine an objective way what the cornea looks like. And I always look at my topography to look to see what type of astigmatism. Is it regular? Is it irregular? Is there a lot of dropout? So it leads me down the path. If I know that the topography looks very unusual, then I look for other things I may have missed, like corneal anterior basement membrane dystrophy, something else that could have been on the slit lamp that was subtle that I didn't really notice that could lead to the different measurements from the different machines. But, I, you know, in, in there are there are two settings in which I, there is a disagreement in the astigmatic magnitude, one of which I'm very comfortable with and one of which makes me nervous. So if I have a, 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 a patient where uh, the patient's manifest is, let's say, a little bit higher than the cylinder that I'm getting from um, the devices that I trust from topography, let's say, I feel comfortable with the idea that I'm treating a little bit less than what the patient's manifest is, maybe winds up with a little bit of cylinder post-op, maybe the cylinder really was coming from the lens and he winds up perfect post-op. The patients that, the, 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 the settings that make me nervous are where I have a lot of cylinder or a lot more cylinder on topography than on the patient's manifest. Mm -hmm because I'm worried that if I don't treat it, and some of these patients, you do the calculations, and the calculations would suggest not to even put in a torque lens. Mm -hmm. I'm worried that the patient is, is going to have a lot of cylinder post-operatively. What do you do with those guys? I mean, how do you, how do you make a judgment? Whereas that there, there, there's the risk of over-treating someone, of flipping an axis, which is obviously the last thing that you want to do. Mm -hmm. So I think the question that you're asking is actually a very advanced question. So let me just clarify, step back a little bit. The, we, we know that when we're dis, de, dis, determining or planning to put in a toric lens, we're actually using the corneal measurements. So the manifest theoretically should be not looked at when we actually determine whether we're gonna put in a toric lens because the manifest refraction before surgery is looking at the overall astigmatism of the eye, including the cataract lens. Correct. So we know that when we take out the cataract, that's going to leave the, the far majority, if not all the astigmatism, just in the cornea. And that's why we use a corneal measurement. So the reason your question was advanced, because a lot of people who may be listening and watching, they don't use toric lenses. So I don't want to mislead the audience thinking that we use the manifest to determine whether they use a toric lens. So the first answer is actually you really ignore the manifest. But what you're pointing at is a very difficult situation where there are definitely some people where they wear a lot of astigmatism in their spectacles and their brain, their cortical function has always been used to a certain amount of elongation in a particular meridian, for example, because of the astigmatism. Absolutely. And so when you get rid of that, some people have difficulty with this change in image quality, or not quality, but really change in image. It's rare 
but we do find that. So that's a very difficult situation. So I think a lot of the people find that they tend to err towards the side of their manifest refraction if they're uncertain between two torque powers, for example. So they're left with, do I completely correct it and even overcorrect a little bit, in which case you flip the axis, or do we undercorrect it and leave them with a little bit of astigmatism where they were used to in the axis they were used to? And I think that that would be the right choice is to leave them a little undercorrected with the astigmatism in the axis that their brain was used to. Now, the, 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 these, are, these are great points and they're helpful personally, uh, uh, very helpful personally. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm hesitant to bring up a, a new topic, but I, you know, I, 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 Bonnie, I, I can't hold back. Um, when, 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 when you're doing your toric lens calculations now, mm-hmm. are you using a, a, a formula or a, a, a system or a website that takes into account the contribution of the posterior corneal curvature? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I know the work with um, Doug Koch and Lee Wang, they did a, a fantastic job really highlighting the, the effect of the posterior cornea. And I, at this point, I still use the calculators that the lens manufacturers. So whether it's the Acrosoft Torque Calculator or the Technus Calculator, I tend to use that calculator. But the way I add that contribution of the posterior cornea is I look at where their steep axis is. So if it's vertical, I tend to use a little bit less toric power compared to if the steep axis is horizontal. So if the lens power, I'm trying to decide between two torque powers and the patient is steep at 90 degrees, then I'll tend to go with a lower torque power and conversely the other way. If they're steep horizontally, then I'm going to go ahead and put the slightly higher torque power. And that's usually how I add the contribution. At this point, you know, I think it's hard unless you have a machine that actually measures the actual posterior cornea and we don't have an an instrument like Galilei. So... Yeah, just 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 to put in one quick plug on the ASCRS website now under tools, there's the Barrett uh, Toric Lens Calculator, which is not not only uh, does the calculation for the appropriate um, uh, Toric lens, but it, it will also do the the calculation for the power of the of the lens too. Yeah, so yeah, really really neat stuff. It's a it's a it's a wonderful website. Uh, not as wonderful as you are, Bonnie. I'm so happy uh, that uh, you're so generous with your time with us today. Thank you very much. Doug Ree is chairman of the Department of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences at the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine in Cleveland, Ohio. Bonnie Henderson comes to us from the Boston Eye and Laser Surgery Center and Ophthalmic Consultants of Boston in Boston, Massachusetts. Ask questions of Dr. Ree, Dr. Henderson, or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.